Good morning, Vintage Church. I am heavily challenged by our worship through song this morning to make sure that I can legitimately and in clear conscience come here and sing all I have is Christ and, and mean it. Um, I think often we might say those words and think all I have is Christ and it's really nice to have all of these other things too. Um, but all I have is Christ is a mentality and an attitude that leads a person to believe that if that is all they had, that Christ would still be glorified in their life and they would be able to move on as well, if not better, than they were before. I pray for our church that Christ would be the center of our focus and that as we do anything to grow in Him, we would also add to that song and say, I'm only doing this for Christ. I'm living this way for Christ. He's all I have. He's all I need. And so this is how I show that to Him. I pray for myself and I pray that it's found in you that when we sing the words of the songs that we sing, that it is a testimony, it becomes more and more a testimony of our lives as opposed to something we hope to attain. Mm. Good. We should always hope and wish for more, but I pray that these songs become more and more a testimony of our lives. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 14. We're going to finish this first section of Romans chapter 14 today. We started last week with verses 1 through 4. We'll finish through. 12 today. Today we're going to continue in this idea of the body of Christ walking in love and understanding. I gave you three commands last week that I think are from the Lord on being a church that is one in understanding. I want to let you know that I've had a lot of fun with these commands in my head as I was trying to formulate them on how to say them. Um, the ones that you see today are not the ones that came to my head first. Last week we said, do not quarrel over opinions. What came to my head was, don't be a jerk all the time. <laughs> Number two, or excuse me, that was for receive the weaker brother. Don't be a jerk all the time. The second was, don't quarrel over opinions. That was, you aren't always right. Uh, number three, understand that we are God's representative, but not his final authority. That was who died and made you boss. Number five, I thought today, and uh, as I was preparing, I thought for today, number five is pursue personal holiness above judgment. And that was really more sanctified than what I thought. Uh, my grandmother taught uh, her daughters to say this to us, and we heard it a lot growing up. But I wanted to put keep your own nose clean. That's what I wanted to put for number five today. But for the so sake of keeping this moment sacred, I have refrained from actually using those. But for the sake of keeping me who I am, I told you what I was going to do. Told you how my brain was going to work or how my brain worked. Well, we spent last week and, and we will finish this week looking at how the body of Christ walks in love and understanding. And then we took some commands 
I have three more to give you today that we took some commands uh, that we gather from our text. I think Paul is giving on building unity and love specifically within the body of Christ. The first was receive the weaker brother. We need to understand that there will be less mature people in the church. Even people who have been professing Christ for a long time. Our job as Christians is to exhort them and not hammer them down on every little difference. What we find is, is that if we give people a little space to be wrong, that eventually they might be able to grow out of what they were wrong in. But if you try to hammer every single person down on every detail of their life, what they often do is double down and stick with a wrong opinion just out of sheer bullheadedness. So we need to give people grace to grow. We need to give people an opportunity to change. And we do that by not being a jerk all the time or receiving the weaker brother. Do not quarrel over opinions. Do not quarrel over opinions. The church should be full of healthy debate. Full of it. I think healthy debate is one of the, one of the beautiful aspects of iron sharpening iron. I think we should be in constant communication when we're together about Christian things and thoughts, even if we disagree about them. But they should mostly be based on what we know as absolutes. They should mostly be based on what we know as truth. And there should be some room for interpretation on things that are conscious or opinion Based and understanding that we are God's rep, his representative and not his final authority. Yes, our words have weight because Christ is in us and the Holy Spirit is working in us. But as we'll see today, Christ is also in the other other Christian and the Holy Spirit is also working in him. And so if we come to some conclusion that is not that is not um, undermining absolute truth, then we can say, there's still a work of Christ in this person. I may think they're wrong, but there's still a work of Christ in this person. And so we don't, when we understand that we're God's representative and not His final authority, what we're saying is, is that there is a possibility that Christ is working in this person in a way that makes us both acceptable to God. That makes both of our conclusions acceptable to God because we are being led by our conscience. I want to add three more commands today as it pertains to walking in love and understanding. I I would like to pray first before we do that. Lord God, you are so great. You are infinitely wise, infinitely loving and infinitely understanding. And we are finite in all of those ways. Would you help us to be met with our mortality and our finite nature in those things? So that we are not people who spend most of our time judging, spend most of our time debating, spend most of our time quarreling. But that we spend the vast majority of our time exhorting and lifting up 
and bringing others alongside so that they may grow in the knowledge of Christ our Lord. Father, would you help us in your infinite wisdom to know when to start a debate and when to stop a debate and give us the grace and mercy in all of the words we say in those things. Help us to be people who are discerning, who love people enough to tell them the truth, to approach them with the truth, even if it's a hard truth, but also people who are loving enough to shepherd those people to truth and not drag them along the way. Lord, we pray that you would help us to focus inwardly as it pertains to our lives, that we may grow in the Spirit, that we may grow in the knowledge of Christ, and that we may be changed. Help it to be our goal to change our lives through your power more than it is our goal to change others. We love you so much. We praise you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Just so we can be very clear before we move on in these next three. Being more understanding and allowing room for opinions and all of these commands will not in and of itself solve the problems of disunity in the church. If we follow uh, these commands that we've laid out last week and will lay out this week without the right heart or the right attitude, it will end up blowing up in our face. I've tried to take this route on social media too many times. I've said, I'll just leave room for other people's opinions. And if they want to be wrong, they can be wrong. That's fine. But what I find is that people keep posting stupid stuff regularly. <laughs> and my brain and my mouth can't handle it. So how do we make following these commands stick and most effectively? Paul gives us a key to all of this in his letter to the church at Philippi. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's Philippians 2. God has given us comfort and encouragement in Christ. He has given us the same spirit which softens our attitude and places us in a similar, if not often, in the same frame of reference. Now, if we are to pursue understanding, it isn't going to be because we choose to stop commenting or posting things on Facebook. Or in our mind, we said they can have their dumb opinion. It's still dumb, but I won't be the one to stop them. No, that's not the way we pursue unity. We pursue unity because our mutual comfort and encouragement is in Christ Jesus. And we have the unity of the same Spirit of God that lives within us. Now, I did things to my Facebook to make me not post as much. But I also just can't hide other believers and say that's my only form of dealing with differing opinions or disunity. I have to be able to approach those to be able to approach those with understanding, with kindness, 
with gentleness. But most importantly, if it comes from another Christian, I have to be able to approach those with the unity of Christ in mind and the same Spirit of God that lives within us. And if the unity of Christ and the Spirit of God are not my motivation in refraining from making making mean or whatever comments on social media, then I am just changing a behavior and I'm not changing my life. If we use methods to help us not be so critical, that's good. If we use methods to help us not uh, get into debates or discussions that are harmful, that's good. But also we have to find love and mutual respect for other believers on the back end. If you harbor ill will towards a Christian for their opinion, but you do not ever publicly or um, or you never publicly post about it or you never mature past um, you never mature past this internalized anger, then you are no better off when you are than when you are putting your opinion out every day on social media. Just because you keep things to yourself does not make you a better human. It just makes you more quiet about the problems that the other person is facing publicly. At some point, it has to be deeper for believers than just, I'm not going to say anything. Or discussing differences only with only people who agree with you, which is just a form of gossip. It has to be deeper than I'm just not going to say anything. It has to go to a point where that says this is an image bearer of Christ. We are both in Christ together and we are both led by the same spirit, the spirit of God. And if I can't talk to this person in love, there is something wrong with one of us or both of us. And I need to work to find the solution to that. Following these commands as a means of behavioral modification will not change who we are. Because we are spiritual beings. And although physical actions will help us grow spiritually, spiritual beings need spiritual results. With this in mind, I want to give you the last three commands that I think we see from our text. This is number four. Be convinced in your own mind about what you are doing. Be convinced in your own mind about what you're doing. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Earlier in the text, Paul approaches the thought of um, eating as it related to their worship. You know, the meat that was sacrificed to idols. The Gentile believers were eating anything. And the Jewish believers were still only eating certain things. And now we have this observance of days issue that has appeared. It appears here that a problem had arisen with how the holy days were remembered. I imagine Jewish believers continued with feasts and festivals and Passover. I imagine they continued with the Sabbath. 
And I imagine the Gentile believers did not continue, did not do feasts and festivals and Passover. And I imagine that they did not do the Sabbath in the same way. As a matter of fact, there is evidence that Gentile believers and early believers celebrated Sunday as the Lord's Day all the way in the first century, in the time of the apostles. And so there was this difference between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And it was likely that the Jewish believers here, this is likely what, it's, what Paul is talking about, that the Jewish believers were trying to force the Saturday as the Sabbath on Gentile believers. They were also trying to force the habits that they had created for themselves on that Sabbath. You know, not working, uh, not moving, not cooking, not doing anything like that. And Paul here is going, in his text, is going to leave room for the church to decide for themselves. For the individual in the body of Christ to decide for himself. He believes this issue is not salvific. This issue is not a main thing. And so I think that's the stance we should take. I think that is the stance we should take. There are two major schools of thought that have been accepted widely over the course of humanity since Jesus was here. And then there's a third that is a little less accepted, but it is uh, something that has been accepted. The first is Saturday as Sabbath. Saturday as Sabbath. That means that Christians accepted Saturday as the Sabbath day. They worship on the Sabbath day. And even they kept... Um, they kept the day similarly to what Jewish people would have and still do, uh, practicing Jewish people do today. There's another one as Sunday as Sabbath, where the Sabbath moved to the Lord's Day, the day that uh, we believe He resurrected from the dead. And so Sunday is the new Sabbath day. But it's still followed in a very similar way. There are people all over this country and all over the world who don't do anything on Sunday other than Church gathering and church activities, church type thing, Christian type things. They will not watch ball games. They will not go to the park. They will not, you know, you just name the list of things that you do. That is sort of a Sunday as the Sabbath opinion. And that's one of the more popular of the three. And the most popular, I think, is Sunday as the Lord's Day. And that is that Sunday, the Lord's Day, replaced the traditional Sabbath. I fall somewhere in the middle of two, the two, uh, of two and three. My belief is that Sunday morning church gathering should be the most holy time of your week. I believe that. I believe that we should exert a significant amount of energy to enforcing is not the word I want to use, but a vocabulary word won't come to my mind right now. But to enforcing Christian habits on Sundays. I believe that we can do leisure activities on Sunday. We can go to the park. We can watch football. We can go to a football game. We can uh, play sports. We can do all of those things. But I believe on Sunday we should focus a significant amount of our time towards the worship of the Lord. It is the designated day for believers to worship the Lord. Do you know how I know it's the designated day? You're sitting here right now. Right? You're here. As a matter of fact, it has been accepted throughout history. Most of modern history as 
the accepted day. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we do. That's one of the reasons. We need to understand that the reason, well, I guess you need to understand the reason I take that view is that um, the Sabbath is not really mentioned in a traditional way in the New Testament like it was in the Old Testament. It is not mentioned as a command for New, New Testament Christians. There is a difference between Sunday as the Sabbath and Sunday as the Lord's Day. You know, Sabbath is don't do anything unless it is revolved around the Lord. And Sunday as the Lord's Day is vigorous worship, but not the same as the way Jewish people would have done it. How does Paul respond? Does he say, this is what you should do? This is the way you should do it? Paul has gone I've even gone further than what Paul has said. He says, no. He says, you should be convinced in your own mind of what you're doing. If you are going to do Saturday as Sabbath, you should be wholly and completely convinced that Saturday as Sabbath is what you should do. If you're going to do Sunday as Sabbath, you should be wholly and completely convinced that Sunday is what you're going to do. If you're going to do Sunday as the Lord's Day that has replaced the Sabbath, then you should be wholly and completely convinced that that is what you're going to do. Be convinced in your own mind. You are a responsible, thinking, spirit-filled person. And God has given you the ability to make decisions on those on certain things on your own. And the only stipulation for following those certain decisions is make sure that you do it with absolute and utter conviction. We must be convinced in our own mind of what we believe. It takes work and it takes time and it is difficult. This is why traditional churches are so appealing, even our church at times, because the Sunday morning service is the pastor usually baby birding the congregation. Baby birding the congregation. Eating the word, vomiting it in their mouth, and then taking it home. I was not going to be that descriptive, but evidently some of you don't know what baby birding is. <laughs> Drew. <laughs> Usually Sunday morning is the pastor baby birding the congregation. So it's easy to fall in a place where we are not utterly convinced of what we are doing. This is not people being convinced for themselves. We must have the right conviction. But it's not the right conviction because it's the opinion of our pastor or our favorite scholar. Yes. That's right. If we have not been convinced by our own study and by our own work, then we are not fully convinced. It's as simple as that. Friends, if, you, if all you get is baby birding on Sunday morning, as a means of convincing you of the things that God has called us to do, you are not fully convinced of what you were doing. My parents gave me a large foundation for following Christ. But Christ and the Christian life was not real to me until I was utterly convinced on my own of the reality of Christ Jesus. 
the reality of the truth of Scripture. The same applies to you. So I have two questions that I ask myself and two questions I want you to ask yourself that will help you answer most questions that we have on biblical opinions or biblical conscience. The first is this. Have you examined every corner of the subject that is known to you personally? Have you examined every known corner of that subject? That might be a better way to word it. Have you examined every known corner, every known facet of that subject? If you can answer that yes, then move on. Can I sir, if you answer that no, then go back to studying. The second question I ask myself is can I serve the Lord faithfully and cheerfully if I go down this path? If your answer to the question is yes, then by all means cling to that truth and continue on in it. As we are serving the Lord on these more ambiguous subjects, we need to learn something else. We need to learn to keep our own nose clean. Or more eloquently, pursue personal holiness above judgment. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the days observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be, both, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Paul is explicitly stating to the believers at Rome to get their own mind right about these subjects and let that be good enough. One problem with the internet and Christian discernment bloggers is that everyone is always trying to make up other people's minds. There are people who scour the internet looking for faults in God's people. They can be helpful because they can find major flaws on objective truth. But they also find themselves debating over subjects like we are discussing today. Subjects that are a matter of conscience and opinion and not a matter of fact. Paul is exhorting us today to keep our maximum effort on what we believe and what we do and just be okay with the differences at times. Let me repeat that to you. Keep your maximum effort. Keep your maximum energy on what you believe and what you do. Now, as you'll see, there will be a time and a place for us to interject and insert ourselves in other people's lives to, to usher them along the road of faith. But that is not what our maximum effort should be spent doing. So how do we do that then? I've given you a little bit of that, but I want to give you more. The first is we understand that, that we are in Christ. This is not up here, so if you want to take it, you can take it. If you not, don't. We are in Christ. If there is a difference that seems major, or maybe is major, but also that person appears to be a believer, then we should trust Christ's power to persuade them and not ours. We are not more persuasive than the Holy Spirit. 
We are not more persuasive than the sanctifying power of God in a person's life. And if our assumption is that that person is a Christian, our assumption is that that person is in Christ like we are, then that means that the Holy Spirit is in them, and so we should give room for Christ to work in their life. We should understand that we belong to Christ together. And the same spirit that is in us is in them. Friends, Christians, those who are in Christ, are not isolated from God. Which brings, which always brings about truth in their lives and lasting change. And the assumption is, if we can assume at least that that person is in Christ then there should be some grace and some room for Christ and through the Spirit of God to do work in their life. Just as there was grace and room for Christ through the Spirit of God to do work in ours. So our assumption is that Christ will do the convincing, the convicting, because the Spirit of God is a better convincer than we are. Now, I know you're going to say, well, the Spirit of God uses us to convince others. That's true, 100%. But remember, we're talking about using most of our energy and most of our strength, maximizing our effort to see ourselves grow. If, we are, if people are walking in faith, if they are in Christ, then our expectation, if we have differences with them, our expectation is that the Lord is going to do a work in them as they walk along that path. And so just a little side note, if things never change, our assumption and expectation can be that the Spirit of God does not indwell that person. Because over time... Everybody who is indwelled by the Spirit of God will be more like Christ. So our objective with other believers is to get to know them as well as they will let us. And sometimes dig a little annoyingly. To fellowship with them. To exhort, with them, exhort them, which means to pull them alongside you. To hold their arm. To encourage them to walk with Christ. And the secondary issues we must assume will be handled by spiritual growth and maturity and not being a better debater. And at times, if both of us is walking with Christ, then we must be convinced that we are both doing the will of the Lord simultaneously, even if matters of conscience aren't the same. And we have to be okay with that. I'm okay with Presbyterians across this country believing in paedo-baptism, even though I disagree with it. I'm okay with it. Because I know that they are walking in the Lord and they are doing much for the kingdom of God. I'm okay with people who don't lean as strongly to the Calvinistic side of theology as I do because I know the vast majority of those believers are walking in truth and are benefiting the kingdom of God. 
There are certain things we're just going to have to be okay with. How do we know that this is true? How do we know that believers can walk along similar paths with different matters of conscience simultaneously and both be following the Lord? Because through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, we have seen that He has been and will be Lord over all things. And in that all things is His church. He is Lord over His church. So our assumption and our belief and our faith and our hope is that the Lord is protecting and guiding His church. Even through the nuances. Even through the differences. James Boyce says this, Paul is writing here about Jesus' special lordship over his own saved people. And he is saying that he has become their Lord by dying for them and then rising again. By his death, he has achieved their deliverance from sins, dread, penalty, and power. And by his resurrection, he has established an ongoing relationship with them by which he guides, protects, and saves them day by day until they come at last to be with him in heaven. Now we have sort of an idea of how to handle these more subjective topics as it pertains to others. But Paul tells us something else as we go on. This is number six. Live in confidence because you are the Lord's forever, but work as if it can be lost. Listen, I have faith completely that my salvation is secured in Christ Jesus. And nothing I can do can change that. Because I am in Christ, I will not do anything to change that. But, my attitude is to believe that I'm going to work like I'm forever saved, but I'm going to live like I'm forever saved in that freedom, but work like it can be lost. I believe this is the same way we should treat our spousal relationships. Work like our spouse will never divorce us. Or live like our spouse will never divorce us. Have peace and faith and confidence in our marriage covenant. But work to keep the marriage alive like we worked when we were courting them. Like we worked when we were trying to win them. Same applies to the church. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself unto God. We should have peace and confidence in Christ that we will never lose our salvation. But we must understand there will be judgment for all people. And we must live as though we, knowing we will be judged. Each of us will give an account of himself unto God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Every person ever will stand before God. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the difference will be Christians will bow willingly and non-Christians will bow with a foot on their neck. 
We will all stand before God. We will give an account of our lives. Now, for Christians, this is not this judgment is not in a condemning way. The word here for judgment contains the Greek word demos, which was uh, which was the place in the uh, sporting events where the referees or the judges set in order to award the athlete for their work. Since we are in Christ, He has taken our wrath. He has taken our condemnation. But friends, you must understand very clearly, you will give an account unto God for the life you live post-Christianity. We understand and know that to whom much is given, much is required. Paul is saying, while we are keeping our own nose clean, we should consider that what we do, how we act, the thoughts of our hearts, the motives of our mind will be judged. Not condemned, but judged. Matthew 12 says we will be judged for every idle word. Because out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. I think this is what Paul had in mind when he was asking <coughs> about why we judge. He's saying you better watch what you say because you will be judged for what you say and what you have done. And although every person ever doesn't know your behavior or your actions or your heart or your motives, God does. And they cannot escape the mind nor the judgment of God. So we should be careful with the words that we say. We should be careful with how we treat others with our words. We should be careful with how we condemn or bless others with our words. What we approve of with our words. What we reject with our words. Because every idle word is a representation of the heart and will be judged by God. I think When I think about this, I think about my own children lacking grace with the next. And I couldn't think of a specific example, but it actually happened this morning on the car on the way here. Emmeline was talking about how she reads. She doesn't, by the way. She looks at pages and understands words and stuff like that. But, and Bennett said, you don't read? You don't read? And it wasn't long ago that Bennett learned to read words. And so I said... Something like, do you know how to read? And the, it brought this to my mind. I actually put this in my illustration before that came up. It brought this to my mind that of, of, the, of the lack of grace there is as we are looking at someone else who is in a position that we were, short, we were not long ago in. In a position that only by the grace of God and a good teacher... God is away from that point. We will be judged by everything, everything, every word we say. And trust me, God is a more stringent judge than you are for yourself. His opinion about what you say matters much more than your opinion about what you say. His opinion about what we say matters much more than what others say about what we say. We will be judged for idle words. We will be judged for our talents 
and how we use them. Listen, I feel blessed. I've been given a good family, a supportive wife, relatively good children, a supportive church, supportive friends. I've been given so many things. But I also understand that to whom much is given, much is required. There is this expectation in my own mind to use my talents as best as I can. To always be motivated. To never stop moving. To never stop working for the glory of the Lord. Blake has this view, and I hold it also, maybe not as strictly. But Blake's view is you never truly retire. You never retire. A pastor never retires. He never retires from service to the Lord. A Christian, even though you might retire from your occupation, you never retire for looking at looking for new and interesting ways to serve the Lord. Retirement is only a new opportunity to serve the Lord in a different way than you had before. It's an opportunity where time finally opens up in a way that you always said, if I only had more time. We will be judged by how we use our talents. Friends, you don't get to get to a... I hope that your goal is not to get to a certain point in life where you can stop using your talents in the same way that you've been using them for the, rest of your, for the majority of your life. The goal of your life, of your work life, of your daily life, should be to develop talents so that you can use them in a better way 20 years from now than to shut them down. Because you will be given, you will give an account of your talents from the time that you recognize them and start nurturing them to the time that you die and not the time that the American system says you can stop using your talents. Be judged for every idle word. We'll be judged by how we use our talents. If we don't maximize our talents, we will be judged for that. But everyone will be judged in the same manner. It's why we should have similar expectations just like the Bible did for people whose gifts and talents don't match ours. Listen, if you haven't been given the same things I've been given, the stability that I have, it doesn't mean that I have less expectations for you. It means that my expectations should be appropriately proportioned to the gifts that you have received. But I should still have high expectations for you. Then you should still have high expectations for yourself. Because we know that to whom much is given, much is required. But even more so, we know that the Lord can do much with just a few fish and a little loaves. Don't be caught up in the mindset of feeling sorry for people who don't have a lot or feel so, feeling sorry for yourself if you don't have a lot because you will find yourselves deep into your life thinking, man, if I just had more. We need to exhort people who, who don't have a lot to do much with what they have. And isn't it more beautiful isn't, isn't the story of the woman who gave everything more beautiful than the Pharisee who gave a little? That's the point of that story. Giving what you have in proportion to your love and thankfulness to God. Doing much with a little. 
I will tell you, I am much more encouraged by people like that than I am by people like me. I am much more encouraged with people who give a lot when they didn't have a good family life. When they don't have a good home life. When their marriage started off on rocky grounds. When they didn't do it with a lot of money or a lot of resources. When they didn't do it with the church's support or good friends. I am much more encouraged by that because what I see is a person whose dependence on the Spirit of God has led them to an elevated plane of goodness and obedience to the Lord. Are you using your talents for Him at whatever level you have them? Are you focusing on what you don't or are you focusing on what you don't have instead of what you do have? How can you maximize the gifts that God has given you? We will be judged by how we use our resources, how we spend our money. How we spend our money most mirrors our thoughts on God. This is why the Bible talks about money so much. And we think, we think if we give our 10% to the Lord through the church or through other organizations, we have done so much. But when we look at our bank accounts and we look at the things that we have, we still have 90%. We will be accountable for what we do with those gifts that God has given us. What about our time? Not only every idle word, every idle minute we spend. It's interesting because at least one of us in here probably has a game on our phone that is literally, called, that is literally based on idle time. It's a click game that you just click. I played them. You just click buttons. That's all you do. Just click different buttons just to pass the time. What do we do with our time? I was probably that one that had that on my phone, by the way. In closing, I want us to help us to move forward. I want you to think about these as I give them to you. You can write them down or not. It's fine. I think it will be helpful for you, though. Stop judging the works of other believers until you can guarantee that you are maximizing all the gifts that God has given you. I would just say stop. I would just say stop looking at it as your responsibility to, to, to judge and to correct and to critique other believers until you can guarantee that you are maximizing the gifts that God has given you. And you might say, well, what about the ones who are, who've gone wrong? What about the ones who need to know? I'm telling you, if you are working in your best way to maximize the gifts that God has given you, those people won't go unhelped. Those people won't go uncorrected. Second thing I think will help you is spend time doing an inventory of your own life instead of others. Amen. We are so good at inventorying what other people have or don't have. And not so good at seeing our own blind spots. The third thing I think would be helpful is do what builds up the body. Do what builds up the body. The only thing that I know that absolutely builds up the body that I'm personally responsible for is when I do everything I can to do what pleases the Lord and encourages the saints. 
Do you, do you hear that? You need to hear that because that's very important. The only thing that I can objectively say builds up the body is when I do everything I personally can to serve the Lord and uplift the saints. Everything else is just a maybe. If I correct someone's bad opinion and they stop doing that bad thing or stop thinking that bad way, it's just a maybe because it might not have changed their heart. It just might have changed their actions. But you know what? When I'm doing everything I can to serve the Lord and obeying Him and following Him, I objectively know that I am doing what I can personally to build up the church. When my words within the body of Christ are more encouraging than tearing down, I know that I'm doing what I can to build up the body of Christ. Most of us, all of us, I know that I need this for myself. We need to get back to the basics as it pertains to building up the body of Christ. Serving the Lord as best as I can personally and doing what I can to make my mouth a tool of encouragement for the church. That we would follow the commands of God to build unity within the body of Christ. To bring about oneness and understanding for the sake of the lost, but to the glory of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, you are so good. We are not perfect, we have a long way to go, but like Paul says, we keep pressing on towards that mark. We keep pressing on towards the perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. Would you help us to be an individual that works through the Spirit of God to build up the body of Christ, to encourage the church, to live in unity, to celebrate our differences when they are matter of con- matters of conscience and not matter of fact? To grow and learn from each other in a way that changes us, in a good way that stretches us, that gives us new perspective. To live for you to the glory of the Lord, for the church, for the lost. Bless this church. Bless this church with unity, with understanding with kindness, with love, that the world may know that Christ is in us and He is the hope for the world. We praise You, Lord. We ask all of these things in the matchless and holy, sovereign, infinite, all-powerful name of Jesus. Amen.